Westbrook Health Services has been supporting the surrounding community since 1949 and is known as an agency that is community-focused, people-driven. As one of West Virginia's 13 comprehensive behavioral health centers, Westbrook provides services to eight counties throughout the Mountaineer State and became one of the first comprehensive community behavioral health clinics in West Virginia in 2020. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous help of the Sisters Health Foundation. This year marks 25 years since the foundation awarded its first grant, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Welcome to Studio 2121. Hello, I'd like to welcome everybody to our very first podcast for Studio 2121. Um, I'll be the host for for our first podcast, and my name is Kevin Trippett. I am currently the president and CEO of Westbrook Health Services. And today I have joining me um, Dr. Eric Limegrover, who is our chief clinical officer. And Eric, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions to get us started. Um, what interests you or what got you into the field of mental health? Uh, it's a great question because as I was thinking about it, it's taken a long and winding road. And so um, when I got to college, uh, I was an athlete. I went um, as a football player to Carnegie Mellon. Um, and as I started there, I started on a pre-med track, but had a psychology class my first semester. Um, as I uh, went through uh, my first year, it seemed more and more likely that psychology was really where my heart was, but um, didn't have an idea that I wanted to be a psychologist. That That's not what I grew up wanting to be. Um, being a professional football player was on the track, but a psychologist wasn't the first thing I wanted to be when I grew up. So as I got through the end of my college career, I needed to take a year off. Um, I had a bachelor's in psych, had really no idea. Um, at that point, the NFL dream was pretty far away, um, but I still wanted to be in athletics. So I went back for graduate school, ended up at WVU. Um, through that process, got into sports psychology. And so I got a master's in sports psych, got introduced to counseling, uh, got a master's in counseling and did those concurrently and realized I had even more interest in just not just counseling people, but being involved in administration, being able to impact through teaching. And so then I ended up getting a PhD in counseling psych. Um, so um, after being a lifelong student, my path took me uh, to being community mental health based. I, I just love the the view, the vision, the idea of being able to help a community, especially um, one such as uh, the Mid-Ohio Valley that has a lot of challenges, but a, a lot of resilience underneath all of that. And so uh, my path started uh, maybe different than a lot of other uh, people who are in my field, um, but it came back to the idea of some of the core interests in that um, you have to love what you do, but you also have to have a purpose. There has to be something that guides it because, you know, in this process, um, it definitely pays the bills, but, um, you know, being able to help individuals achieve functionality, get to places that they couldn't get to on their own, that, that really kind of drove and uh, fueled my fire for this. So um, uh, I know that was maybe a longer version of uh, what you were looking, but um, no, uh, it's, it's, it's a varied background and it all started with football crazy enough to think that's that's awesome and you know, it's real interesting because a lot of things you speak to is a lot of what we try to do at Westbrook and it's it's very um, passionate for me that we try to help the community and, and try to help build as you mentioned resiliency with individuals in need um, so how did you end up at Westbrook mm-hmm. so 
My partner um, grew up here. She actually is a proud graduate of Parkersburg High School. Um, and so uh, she has roughly about 15 uh, family members, some of which now have moved away. But um, we live in Marietta, but moved to, closer to be to her family. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, so Westbrook wasn't the reason that we moved to the area, but as I got more and more ingrained with the culture, got to see what was going on, uh, one thing was true. I could see that Westbrook, um, first of all, had a lot of what I was looking for. It, 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 I'm not comfortable ever wearing just one hat. I'm one of those guys who needs, you know, to do something for a little bit and then move to another activity or else I become stagnant probably ineffective to some extent. So I saw the scope, I saw the longevity. I mean, 70 years in any industry um, at that point uh, really shows that uh, for the most part, it's not based on just, you know, um, you know, trends. They, they have, you know, multiple op opportunities through that process to um, not just impact kind of change, but, you know, be able to withstand, you know, uh, financial issues, um, staffing issues. I mean, if you think about how many people they've been able to impact in that period of time, it really made a great um, case for them. So I think the thing that drew me to Westbrook, first of all, was the longevity, uh, the scope of services, the opportunity to do many things, but also selfishly, um, one of the things that they offered here too um, was called the National Health Service Corps. Uh, not many people know what the National Health Service Corps is, but um, it's kind of like the Peace Corps for mental health. Um, it's not everywhere in the, the country. It's uh, only reserved for areas that have high need. And high need could be for socioeconomic, could be because of issues like for us with the opiate epidemic, we, we became um, a very prominent area for people who um, have accumulated a ton of student debt and um, the way to recruit to that area is the National Health Service Corps, which will help offset some of that debt. And so, as I talked about before, um, unfortunately, independently wealthy isn't one of the boxes I've been able to check. So after uh, a Carnegie Mellon education, two master's degrees and a PhD, I, I had uh, some student debt that was, you know, not just going to affect me, but it affect my family for the foreseeable future. So the National Health Service Corps helped me erase all of that debt um, through service to Westbrook and to the community. And so, you know, there was, you know, personal aspects of being close to family, paying off student debt, but also, um, you know, that that isn't the only opportunity. Westbrook allowed me to have multiple different hats in ways that I could really um, see, you know, huge changes in the community by being involved with this organization. It's very exciting, and we do um, qualify for that benefit, and we have many employees that have been able to take advantage of helping with um, student debt loan, and it's been a great program for us. And you know, I don't know if, if I ever shared with you how I got into Westbrook. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't know much about mental health. Um, I had out of college, I had worked nine months managing Bob Evans, and in that nine months period, I had moved from to three different cities. They started me in Parkersburg for training, then they moved me to Cambridge, Ohio, then they moved me to Fairmont, West Virginia, and it, it just, that wasn't for me. I wanted to be more grounded, more settled, so I came back home and was looking for a job. Um, I started serving at Applebee's um, 
for money, and my cousin, um, Jesse Trippett, worked um, in the what used to be the SA division. Um, since then, we um, have changed our terminology to be more appropriate for substance use disorder. But so she worked in um, the substance use disorder division at Westbrook and told me they had an opening um, to get my feet in the door. It was for a payroll clerk. So I started off entry level position working, um, running payroll for Westbrook. Probably about two months into that role, um, the accountant at the time left for another job. And so the, the agency decided instead of replacing the accountant, they would move me up and I would take on both roles. I would still continue payroll, but I'd be the accountant as well. Um, I worked for an individual named Larry Wheatley. He, he hired me, he was the CFO. I think it was less than a year in, he decided to retire and they replaced him with another CFO. Um, shortly after um, Jim DeGarmo was his name, he came on as the CFO. Um, it was less than two years of employment for me the board of directors came in and, and I was, I didn't know everything that was going on. I knew that we were having some financial difficulties, um, but the board came in and they terminated the CEO at the time, they let him go, and they terminated our MIS director. Um, so they named an interim CEO um, who was the um, division director for SA then, and her name was Linda. She asked me um, because our CFO would quit um, when they did that because they didn't give him the opportunity to take over as the CEO and he got upset and he left. So she asked me to take over the CFO duties on an interim basis. In addition to that, we had no MIS director, nobody that knew anything about computers, so I had to dig in and, and try to figure out what our server base was. We had maybe 20 computers at the time and I had a file server, didn't have an email server, didn't have a... We did have a server for our client records, but so I was, so I had many hats, as you mentioned, <laughs> um, that, that is kind of what led me to the story. Um, I got to be the CFO, the accountant, running payroll, I got to run the IT department all at the same time, as this agency was in a lot of turmoil with an interim CEO um, and a bunch of what people were familiar with, staff that were terminated. So um, they, didn't, they decided in their job search with their CEO not to m let the interim continue in that role. They hired Joanne Powell, who later became a great mentor for me. She was our CEO for a very long time. And through that process, she named me the permanent CFO. I was able to uh, start hiring employees. I hired my first IT director. And um, that's, how, that's how I came into Westbrook. And the interesting thing for me is, is I wasn't looking for this field, but I became very passionate about it. Mm -hmm. I, I love the things that we do, um, the help that we provide the community, the benefits our clients get from our services. And, and it's hard to think where we would be um, without the work that we do. Um, Joanne and I, very early on in that time period, actually went to the state and, and asked for money because we were in danger of going bankruptcy. And the one thing I remember from that conversation that still lives with me today, um, we were told that they're not going to give us money, we're not going to pay you for what you didn't do, we're only going to pay you for what you do do. And so that has kind of been my mantra um, moving forward, you know, what can we do? Um, and it's not just from a money standpoint, but it's also from how it benefits the community. What can we do? Uh, so that's, that's kind of 
my background in history with Westbrook. So. It's interesting because as I've st as I've been here, I've, I've now at about six and a half years. How many people have been here for multiple decades? First of all, but not just that, been in multiple positions, or have encouraged family members to also be employed here. Just like you talked about your cousin. Um, my partner works here. Um, I have, um, you know, multiple colleagues who have had children work with them. Um, you know, it, it's it's something unique that I don't think every community mental health center has. Um, from my experience, community mental health um, has a high burnout rate. It's very difficult. Um, you're dealing with some of the most high need clients with some of the most limited resources. And you know, from that standpoint, um, being able to have that kind of buy-in from so many different people who, as you said, just the challenges that you noticed when you first started here, whether it was with administration, finances, to be able to sustain for long over 70 years and still talk glowingly about the organization. I mean, that, that it's amazing. It's, it's, so it comes back to that first, like why Westbrook? I mean, ultimately, it, I think not only does it have a high standard, but it, it's got almost a family um, mentality that we all have these great origin stories and we complement each other so well. Yeah, and I agree. And, and that kind of leads me next into what I wanted to talk about. Um, so with trying to expand services and, and be there for the community and be there for the individuals in need, um, about, well, I guess it's about two years ago, mm -hmm. we, we just made a decision to apply for a federal grant um, it was to become a um, certified community behavioral health clinic. And we were able to get that grant. Um, Westbrook, along with FMRS down in the Beckler area, are the first two organizations in the state of West Virginia to achieve this determination. So it's pretty exciting for me. I think it was, um, it's something that's been on a national level since 2017, 2016, somewhere around there. Um, I think it's been a great thing that we've been able to bring this to West Virginia. Um, and that's kind of the role that we expanded for you, was to help us with um, CCBHC and, and take on leadership of that grant. So can you tell me a little bit about um, the process, what it means to be a CCBHC, and, and what it's meant for Westbrook? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was a learning curve for me. I didn't know as much about the origin or what it actually stood for. When I heard grant, I assumed it was similar to what was, you know, pretty much offered both on an, a local, national, and, and state level. And it, it's completely and entirely unique. Uh, being a certified community behavioral health center um, is funding from the federal government, but it's short term. Um, it's two years. And in some cases, it can be just one year, but it's a two-year grant with, with a very high amount of money. Um, but that money has to be spent solely on staffing. Um, so, you know, a lot of times um, grants can help you build facilities, can help you, um, you know, with different components of purchasing vehicles or being able to do things that normally you might not be able to, to pay for unless it's out of pocket. This grant specifically is meant to impact the community through staffing expenses or new program development. 
Um, so from our standpoint, the Certified Community Behavioral Health Center, as you said, was a new opportunity in West Virginia. On the national scale, states have been using this now for about four years and have had huge impacts um, in their states. They've actually um, been able to take good services and make them great services. Uh, when I talk about what it means to um, you know, individuals who are in the field, they may feel that they're doing really good work, but when you're a CCBHC, you have to meet the Cadillac standard of evidence-based practices, which means anything that you do as an agency has to have data to prove it, um, has to be replicable, and what we do for every individual who comes through the door um, is outcome measuring to see when they come in, where they currently are functioning, and then at a six-month interval, we do outcome measures to ultimately see, first of all, have they improved in areas? Um, if, if not, are they, are they stable in areas? Or in some cases, things have happened in their life and perhaps, perhaps they've had to step back and in that process, maybe now have additional areas that we need to address, but it's data-driven we're able then to basically develop a treatment plan. We're able to come back to them and show them, you know, here's what the data is saying. This is the things that we need to do. And what we've been able to do is expand our staff. We've moved into um, counties and regions with services that we never had before. And all of these things that we've done are gonna be sustainable after the grant funding's gone. The really cool part is we will complete our grant funding this May 31st. Um, we will have expended all of our resources. We don't need to have any carryover requests or anything like that, but every single staff that we've been able to hire, every program that we've developed, will be able to sustain just simply because of their ability to either through billing and being sustainable on their own, or because we've been able to allocate other services or co connections in the community which will help subsidize those individuals because we've shown value. So to get back to it, I still probably sound kind of cryptic. It is short-term staffing funds from the federal government to meet an expectation that you are going to be per, you know, performing the best level or evidence-based services in that community. And so it's, it's like a uh, elite fraternity of um, community behavioral health centers that have to do psychiatric services, which is medication services, mental health services, and substance use services. And that can be on all kinds of different levels, but it can be through prevention services, it could be individual-based, it can be group-based, it can be um, services that are residential in nature. So these could be programs that individuals go and stay at for periods of time, or they could be situations where an individual could um, end up getting multiple different services. And so maybe they have a mental health provider, but also gets uh, medication through our psychiatry department. And all of that has been expanded because of these, these grant funds. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the statistics, but um, from a federal level, CCBHCs have had um, a 17% um, on average increase in the number of individuals they can serve. 50% um, of CCBHCs are now offering same-day access to care, which we have set that up, which I think is very beneficial. We know mm -hmm. that um, the longer it takes someone to get care, the less likely they will seek it. 84% um, of clients have their first appointment with one, in one week. 
So um, trying to meet individuals when at their time is very important. And then 93% of individuals have been seen within 10 days. So it, I know it has helped us dramatically, mm -hmm. getting individuals who um, are referred to us needing services, getting them in quicker um, and getting their, their services started at a lot quicker rate. So uh, the other thing I want to read is some of the state outcomes, um, and, and bear with me just a little bit because I think these are very exciting. These are some of the states that got into the original pilot program. Um, CMS has eight states that are on what's called a prospective payment system, um, which is something we're actually trying to implement here in West Virginia. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but in Oregon, over two years, they saw a 17% increase in individuals with serious and persistent mental illness receiving services. So a population that typically um, doesn't get the services that they need. So that's pretty exciting. Um, in New York, um, they saw all-cause readmissions drop 55% after year one. In Nevada, they had a 250% growth in the number of clients served by the third year. Um, Missouri, who really is the, um, the state where this all started and is, is like the one you want to look to to see mm -hmm. some of the exciting stuff. Hospitalizations have dropped 20% after three years and emergency room department visits have dropped 36%. Imagine a cost savings with that, um, keeping people out of the EDs. Um, in six months, those who have had some sort of law enforcement, 70% of them had no further law enforcement involvement. Um, it has helped re a reduction in diabetes and hypertension um, because one thing that, um, with the CCBHC grant, we also do primary care screenings, and we also try to connect individuals with primary care. So um, it has helped also not only from a mental standpoint, but from a physical standpoint. Um, Texas believes that they're going to save the state $10 billion in 10 years' time from the CCBHCs that they have set up. Um, one particular county in Texas, Travis County, says that their CCBHC has saved their local law enforcement $1.64 million in less than one year. So, you know, not only are we impacting um, individuals' lives and increasing those receiving services, we're saving some money. Yeah, um, we're saving states a lot of money. It's, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, I, I mean, to add to that, and I know we're going to put West Virginia on that list, you know, some things that we've seen just in our short period of time of doing this is that people get better. Um, you know, before it might be more anecdotal. We might, you know, say, well, if you, if you, you do it and you, you stick to it, you know, you might feel better. We actually have data that shows that people's symptoms, uh, people's functionality, um, people's ability to engage your family completely change. Um, the other thing, and, and so if this was the West Virginia mark on it, you know, what we were is, you know, the trailblazers. Us and FMRS were the first two to go at it. But now what we've seen in the state is we've had four other comprehensives uh, get funded under CCBHC. They've, they've jumped in. Uh, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They, they've seen what we've been able to do. Uh, we've helped mentor them the same way we were mentored by some of these other states, by the federal government. Because the federal government, when they put this kind of money behind something, they don't want to see you fail. Um, so my, my schedule was filled with meetings with other states who had gotten CCBHCs. Um, I was in um, think tanks with groups who were getting off the ground the same way we were. Um, the federal government also had uh, what they call as grant um, uh, 
grant directors or GPOs who meet with you on a monthly and, and, and when we first started, it was an every other week basis. But the other thing that you can put there in that West Virginia bullet point, if we wanted to say is, you know, if we if we lied and said uh, we we read the crystal ball or read the tea leaves that we knew COVID was coming and that um, all of these you know huge issues uh, you know as the opiate epidemic shifted to the methamphetamine epidemic and all of these other things that we could see you know this coming um, we'd be lying to you. I mean it, it it caught us off guard too. But I'll I'll say this: we were fortunate enough to get the CCBHC funding before COVID hit. And for us, it wasn't a life raft because ultimately we had things in place, but here, here's the interesting part. During COVID, we saw an increase in services provided and um, that and that's with people who are on quarantine. This is individuals who, you know, had significant barriers, whether they're financial barriers, uh, ability to travel. We actually saw more people during COVID than we did before COVID. And that's, you know, a testament to what we were able to establish with the CCBHC. If we didn't have that, the people would have been suffering at a higher level. Uh, more people would have been isolated. And so it really was a game changer um, and really helped our community get through and even though we're not done with COVID, we're still being able to provide these services. It really helped us cement our place in this area to try to be on the backside as everybody gets done uh, and out of this pandemic together. So, yeah, I mean, it's been real exciting. We've been um, the telehealth services that we have set up. Um, mm -hmm. We can meet individuals where they're at if they're stuck at home. Um, Yes, you are dependent upon having high-speed internet, but um, we have been able to connect and, and do services um, to individuals based on that as well. Also helps us with clinicians. Yep. Can't make it in um, to work, or even if they live out of state, but they want to help West Virginia, we can use them with telehealth features to, to help serve our population. So it's pretty exciting. It really is. It really is. One of the, one of the things that um, you mentioned, it's a two-year grant. Um, which we are wrapping up. Um, so we would like to see this model be more sustainable, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, two years at a time, depending upon a federal grant, is not, um, you know, not the world you want to live in necessarily. It's been very beneficial for us. It, it's helped quite a bit. But um, to create a more permanency, um, the state of West Virginia, through the Bureau of Medical Services, can apply for a state planned amendment for Medicaid to set up the CCBHC concept on a more permanent basis. Um, currently, the Bureau for Behavioral Health and the Bureau for Medical Services has put in a work group along with the um, Association of Behavioral Health Providers, um, and we're working on um, what it might look like to create a CCBH model um, for West Virginia. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, we, you know, we're probably a year to two away from seeing this come to fruition, but um, we're, we're very excited about the work that's being put in place for this. Um, in addition to that, um, we've started a bill, Senate Bill um, 247, which has passed um, the Senate Health Committee and is now up for passage in the Senate Finance Committee. And this bill basically does state um, that 
um, DHHR needs to put a CCBAC spot in place, which they're already working on. So we're moving in the right direction. I think it's pretty exciting. I think it will create a lot of stability um, for the future of behavioral health in the state of West Virginia. So we're very excited about that. One of the things you mentioned um, is outcomes and that we're measuring outcomes and we use a resiliency measure for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really like that concept. Um, resiliency is, I think, important for all of us to have. Um, I build resiliency in my personal life um, in my downtime with working out, lifting, running. Um, it, it clears my mind. It helps me um, focus a lot of times. Sometimes my best thinking is when I'm out in the road running. I um, have nothing else to worry about. So it, it, it's a great concept, I believe. Um, so what does resiliency mean to you and how do we measure it at Westbrook and track it? <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, at the very core, to break it down to the easiest components, uh, you need resiliency to survive. Um, you know, whether we go all the way back to, you know, cavemen first, you know, homo sapien on the planet, um, they needed to either run faster, uh, they needed to have a stronger immune system for us to continue to move forward. And, you know, the idea of that means, you know, first and foremost, there's certain aspects of resiliency that you have internally. Um, there's, you know, ultimately an innate um, mechanism that's within all of us to survive. You know, the minute you touch a hot stove and pull your hand away, that's resiliency. You don't just leave your hand there on the hot stove. You want to save yourself, save your hand, save, you know, from that pain. The idea that you also have other things around you, though, that need to be there to help you with resiliency is some of what we're measuring um, through these uh, outcome measures. Um, as you said, uh, these um, measures are done at the very first time you come into the agency and then in six-month increments. Um, the one tool that we use is 17 questions. Um, I think we've timed it. It takes about three minutes if we really are going at a, a snail's pace to get it done. And what it measures is things that you're putting around yourself to help with that resiliency. One of the most important things that help you is your support system. Um, if you think about where you are and where you've gotten to, it's because of people's feedback to you, both positive and negative. It's also been about whether you felt that you're going to be successful or going to have difficulty. And in that process, you surround yourself with people who are moving in that same direction, uh, kind of some like-minded thinking. And you want those people around you. You want that community around you. And when you're having difficulties, that community will help lift you up. When other people in that community are having difficulties, you'll help lift them up. So when we t think about some of the impacts that COVID has had, it's, it's caused individuals to, first of all, move away from their support systems to be isolated. Um, in some cases, because of the quarantine components of it, um, out of self-preservation, but also there's barriers that have been put in place. Um, when we take a look at what we're measuring through these resilience measures is, first of all, do, does this person have a functional support system? Does, does this individual have people who can help lift them up, um, be there when they need them? Um, are they actual where they're actually having face-to-face -face interaction? Or is, is it just virtual? Is it social media driven? Is it just you know going on somebody's you know Facebook page or something along those lines? Um, it doesn't go down to what like social media is in this particular measure, but it does measure you know the interaction 
interaction someone has with their support system. And then it also looks at other areas of resilience. You know, are they able to navigate um, frustration in their life? You know, is the smallest thing something that pushes them over the edge? Or can they take some disappointment? Can they take some times where there's things that aren't going their way and still be able to overcome and navigate them? Even though uh, they may not like some of the challenges they're going through, they persevere through them. And that's what we measure because I'd love to say, you know, you know, at some point in our lives, there's going to be a point where we don't have difficulty, where we don't have um, challenges. But unfortunately, that's not how the world is. We know that, you know, the unexpected is to be expected. And, you know, if we knew everything that was coming at us, um, then, you know, we, we wouldn't need necessarily to have resilience or have some of these other things. It's the unexpected that this, you know, that therapy helps with. Um, it helps with people who don't potentially um, have the resources available internally or externally to navigate their world. And so part of that is the data that we've been able to see. We've been able to, to notice that consistency in treatment, those individuals who, whether they come in weekly or every other week and they consistently do that, have the largest gains. I mean, that, that's kind of a no-brainer. Um, that's kind of the idea in athletics where, say, you only attend one practice a week, you're probably not going to be as prepared as the individuals who are there practicing all week long. Um, but also what we've seen is that individuals who are able to address all of their treatment goals, be able to you know, be involved with multiple different types of programs if needed, but make progress on their treatment plan, they also have huge gains. And so um, those are some of the things that the data shows. Again, like I said, um, makes sense because if you're, if you're bought in and you're doing what you need to do, you're going to see improvement. But from our standpoint, people want to see that. They want to see a quantifiable number. They want to see that they're doing better. And this, this gives us that. And it's, it's really exciting because ultimately, um, you know, people don't come to us uh, just because you know, they, they you know, have a box to check or they have nothing else to do. They're coming to us to see results and to improve. I mean, we're a performance, performance enhancement um, agency, um, and if they don't get what they, what, what they believe is value out of our services, or if they're not improving, they're not going to come back. And so we're able to help show that and keep their buy-in as they do some difficult work. I mean, there's stuff that people are doing here um, is definitely challenging and, and really um, something that they've struggled to do on their own. So. Yeah, I like that concept, because I don't think you think about that as much in the behavioral health world as having something measurable that shows that you're getting better. Um, you know, most people in their lives, if they're on a diet, um, they can measure their weight to see if they're improving um, from a health perspective or their waist circumference. Or um, if you're into running and you're, you start um, getting faster and faster in that 5K race, I mean, it, that's all exciting to you. So it, it, it is really cool to, to have something to help you in your behavioral health journey to show improvement in areas of weakness that you can build resiliency on areas that you're strong in. So it, it's pretty exciting stuff, really. Yeah, our, <clears throat> our field has, has morphed um, over the last hundred years, definitely, but even just in the last decade, um, you know, mental health battles some pretty significant stereotypes and how mental health may have looked in the 80s, 90s, and even early thousands definitely is different than what it is right now. 
Um, you know, everybody has those images of someone laying on a couch or that, you know, ultimately um, they're going to be hugging a pillow or, or they're, they're walking into a room with a bunch of stuffed animals or something else along those lines. I mean, this has changed and morphed the field to where it's a lot more data driven. Um, clinicians are being trained in impact therapies. These are therapies that are driven by um, different types of curriculums, activities, both in the office, potentially online. There's a million and a half, and I literally, I think it's a million and a half now, um, actual online uh, types of surveys, resources, things that you can do. Just like this podcast, you could go online, find a podcast that's directed just towards anxiety or just directed towards some eating um, behaviors or things like that. And so the field right now is in a completely different area than it was. And it's much more similar to um, other types of interventions, whether those are medical interventions, um, things that you would do. And I think you brought up a great one, dieting, working out. Um, you know, right now this, this and I, I try to emphasize this, this is about performance enhancement. Um, you know, we do things to try to get a person from where they are to where they want to be. And then they fire us. I mean, we don't want them to be dependent on us for the rest of their lives. And some people have some things, whether they're medication you know, oriented or stuff, that they might need assistance throughout the course of their life. But we want to get a person to the point where they can do it on their own. And once they can do it and replicate it, then at that point in time, they know where we are if they need us again. You know, the same way that once the cast comes off a broken leg, they don't keep having doctor's appointments for the rest of their life unless, you know, something else happens or there's a setback. It's the same vision for us. And I don't think people have gotten that. Uh, I think we struggle with that interpretation. Um, I don't dislike Dr. Phil, but I don't think he's helped us in a lot of ways because people have unrealistic expectations of what will happen. Like coming to see us for a half an hour is not going to happen to get all of your, you know, I, you know, issues identified and resolved. Some things have taken a lifetime to happen. So it's going to need a little bit of time for us to unwind. And so the cool part with CCBHC funding is not only did we impact the community, but it required us to make sure that our therapists and our treatment providers were all trained in the most evidence-based programming. Things that have data behind them that when you come in, you're not lying on a couch or hugging a pillow. You're literally doing something that has data behind it that says, you know, six sessions from now, 12 sessions from now, uh, you're going to have these different interventions that are going to give you some sort of impact and change your ability to function. And through that process, um, if it doesn't work, we then know what else we have to add into the equation because ultimately um, that's the charge from taking the money. Um, by getting that funding, we definitely have to live to the expectations of you know people coming through the door are gonna get treated regardless of what's going on with the Cadillac service. Yeah, it, it's all really good stuff as I mentioned before. Um, one of the other things we have done with the funds that I think is, is, is really exciting is, is we have started, and it's not fully implemented yet, we're still trying to hire staff, but we've started an adult mobile crisis team with the emphasis on responding to law enforcement calls. Um, I had a conversation with um, former chief of police in Parkersburg, um, Chief Martin, 
And one of the things they were struggling with is responding to calls to the community and about 40% of them was his estimate. I don't know that we had solid numbers on that, but that was his guess. Um, were individuals that were dealing with some type of mental health crisis that police officers weren't trained on how to handle. Often it might lead to an arrest when the individual really just needs help. So during that conversation with him, I told him, you know, I'll find the funding. We'll get something in place so that you can call us and we'll send a mental health professional out to assist the officer, help train the officer on how to um, um, relate to the individual appropriately and we can do an evaluation to see yes this individual is best served by going in jail or um, seeking treatment and then we would help the individual with treatment so we um, have got it started um, we've gotten great response from from law enforcement so far um, we want to continue to expand it but it's been something else that this CCBHC funding has helped us establish and, and we're very excited about it. Um, along those lines, um, something that you've been involved with, I'd like you to, to speak a little bit about is our Veterans Committee. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the requirements um, with the grant is outreach to veterans and improve your services, not necessarily improve, expand your services to help meet the needs of veterans in the community. So. So what have we done um, to assist with that? Yeah, um, it, it, it's um, a really large undertaking. Um, and uh, when I say that, um, part of it is that we have a, a very large community of individuals who have served um, here in our region. Um, the Mid-Ohio Valley um, has one of the largest veteran communities in the country. and. Um, there were services that were being provided here. Um, some of those services are through the Veterans Association, the VA, um, but those services are rather limited um, to the veteran themselves, um, not the family, not being able to, um, you know, some of the members of the family being able to access them. Also, um, you, you also need to have received an honorable discharge to receive VA services, but there are a lot of individuals who may have had military service um, issues related to that service who didn't get to the level of honorable discharge. And so um, with that, one thing that we've done is we've put a team of individuals, we've been able to get what we call a leadership team of community individuals, um, some with service backgrounds, others who have expertise in certain areas, um, and we've been able to partner with other organizations in the process. We meet on a monthly basis. Um, we are um, able to provide services not to just veterans who were honorably discharged, but we're able to provide our entire gambit of services to their families, to individuals who have served um, that may not have received honorable discharge, and um, that's everything from substance abuse, mental health, psychiatry, to residential services. We have services that help with people who are homeless. Um, we've also got outreach and prevention services, and so that's even taken us out of our region, which is pretty exciting. Um, it is a requirement in the CCBHC, but we would have done it because it was right. Um, it is a, a population of individuals who um, had needs that weren't being addressed. Uh, the VA has gotten on board with us. They actively participate now in our leadership team meetings. Um, they include us 
in groups. We go out to the community. We have presence through some of our case management. We're actually able to have a veterans case manager um, position developed, and he goes out to the community. Uh, there's um, groups for individuals regardless of what branch they're in. Uh, one's called Joining Forces. Um, we've also gotten involved with our disabled veterans associations uh, just to raise awareness. Um, this isn't like a solicitation. We're, we're not getting some form of kickback. This isn't, you know, something that, you know, we're trying to, you know, wrangle people in. We make them aware that we will not turn away people with um, inability to pay for services. And part of that is we've seen the numbers of veterans increase 500 fold since we started this leadership team. Um, and that's, you know, like I said, not just the veteran themselves, but also the individual whose family or um, um, whether it's a partner, spouse, or um, children who are receiving these services in our facilities. We serve eight counties, but also we've also partnered with other agencies in other counties. And so if there's a service that we don't have in our region, say they needed something specific uh, and unique to, and you brought up Beckley as a perfect example. We now have partnerships with agencies down there that they can go down, get that service, and at the same time still receive that in the state of West Virginia, um, regardless of their ability to pay. The other thing it's done, and I, I know I'm, I'm long-winded, I'm, I'm working on trying to get uh, less wordy, but um, the other thing it's done is it's allowed us to train our staff on, um, and I keep coming back to it, but in our field, the idea of evidence-based um, interventions is huge. Um, it's kind of like how you look at, you know, the meat that you buy in the supermarket to see if the USDA is signed off on it. Um, you, you look to see, you know, does the movie that you're going to have two thumbs up or like if you're buying something on Amazon, how many stars does it have? Evidence-based services means that it's, it's reached a level of data collection that when you do these types of interventions, you're going to have impact. There are certain interventions that working with people who have had trauma, specifically um, it, veterans who may have had trauma due to serving or the process that they've gone through by deployment and other aspects, that you're gonna see impact. And what we've done is we've invested in the training of a therapist in what's called EMDR. It's a trauma-based service and all of our therapists have uh, received exposure to another type of treatment called cognitive processing therapy. Both are endorsed by the VA, both are required as part of service to veterans. And through that process, that was something that hadn't happened before the CCBHC. Um, they do um, have huge impact with the community in general, so you don't need a veteran's background to see that. But those types of trainings, those types of interventions um, now are making impact in our community and in part because of the funding that we receive from the federal government. Yeah, it's very exciting, and, and it's just another group in the community that was unserved that we've been able to, to help with. Um, I want to talk about one last thing that CCBHC grant has helped us with. Um, one of the, another requirement in addition to serving veterans that we had with the grant was serving a minority group. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that's very important to the federal government, and I think it's something that's very important to Westbrook. Um, we, um, in West Virginia, um, there's not a lot of minorities. Probably the largest minority group that we serve as an agency is the LGBTQ plus community. 
Um, so we have done a lot of training. Um, we have brought on a consultant. We have started a committee called the GRIT team. Um, I'll let you speak a little bit about the GRIT team, but um, it's, it's been our mission to be an inclusive and diverse um, organization and to not um, discriminate in any way anybody uh, is in need of our services. So um, can you speak a little bit about what the GRIT team has done and, and what it means to Westbrook? Yeah. Um, so the GRIT team is our diversity and inclusion team at Westbrook. Uh, we came up with GRIT. Um, I, I can't remember the staff who came up with it, but it became grassroots. It was Liz Ramsey. Liz Ramsey yep. <laughs> uh, came up with a grassroots inclusivity team. And so that's where GRIT came from. But we know that GRIT also kind of indicates resilience. Um, and as you said, um, the LGBTQ plus uh, population is our largest disparity group. Um, we have a ton of diversity in this area, ton of you know backgrounds that you know definitely have shaped this region. But when we look demographically, when you go and you fill out a survey, the largest one that comes you know screaming out is the LGBTQ plus and the problems that. Um, you know, the GRIT team have been addressing is access and barriers. Um, no one needs additional barriers to service. Um, you know, no, it, it takes a lot for people to ask for help in the first place. Um, to be able to identify something that they want, something that they need to change. You know, typically they've been struggling on their own in silence for months, maybe years before they actually decide that they're going to uh, ask someone else to help with their their challenges and so what this team has done um, and it's still in its infancy i mean it's been only together for about four and a half five months so um, we're still finding our feet um, but we've been able to do a survey um, uh, not just of staff but of of the community of what resources are available um, and i i I believe that I, I have a pretty good knowledge of our area, our region, and what, what's offered. And I learned a lot um, of things that people are, are in, engaged in, whether that's here um, physically or virtually online. Uh, there's a lot of different types of resources out there that have popped up and that um, I was made aware of and I, I know our staff has been made aware of. Um, we're also in the process through our consultant of increasing our ability, um, not just to um, impact therapy, but even just understand some of the challenges they may have. We've learned a lot about the binary language. We've been able to work to try to adjust our facilities. Um, we're working on finding safe uh, restroom options that you know are in our waiting area or also in some of the different um, offices in our counties. Um, other things that we're doing is trying to figure out what treatment needs are, are needed and how do we address those needs and that's really what we're doing right now. Um, just to kind of give you um, you know a preview of some of the things that have come up because we just had our meeting yesterday is first you know looking at it do we have individuals uh, in an individual capacity who can it could provide mental health and substance abuse treatment who are those individuals how do we make those referrals 
are we providing group services to individuals who may have issues related to, you know, whether it's um, coming out processes, um, feeling, you know, um, in, in ways, you know, traumatized by, you know, either their family, community, things like that, and how do they navigate those? But here's one, and, you know, hearing some of the stories of the challenges that people have gone through, we have residential substance abuse programs, and those substance abuse programs are short-term and long-term. We have a 28-day program, uh, but we also have two longer-term programs, which um, can last well up into a year of, of being on. Um, and, it, and this is a partial program where they can live, but they can also work in the community while getting service and treatment. But what we have is those two programs are, are split by gender. We have a male program, uh, which is our exodus program, and we have a female program called our genesis program. But if an individual is transitioning, if an individual um, is um, in some way unable to identify with those two, how do they choose and what programming's there? And so um, we're working right now to look at, can we um, staff, um, train, and prepare a residential program for individuals who are transitioning? You know, do we have uh, the need, first of all, but do we also have the ability to do it well? And that's part of what this team's gonna work to evaluate. Um, build some of the relationships in the community. Um, when we take a look, uh, there isn't residential programming for individuals in that capacity um, in the state right now. Um, you know, one of the closest programs that I found is in Dayton, Ohio, uh, which is beautiful this time of year, but um, not many people are gonna make that trip on a daily basis. And so from that standpoint, you know, this, this advisory team, and that's what it is, it's an advisory team, is working to figure out how do we reduce the barriers and how do we increase access to people who might have needs that ultimately we weren't addressing or aware of. And that's a key. It's not that we chose not to provide these. Sometimes we weren't aware we weren't providing. And so this, this advisory team is increasing our awareness and also trying to build resources for us to, to have more impact in our community. Because if any Anything over the last two years, we identified that this pandemic and the challenges that we have, everyone has been affected. Our mental health as a society has been altered because of the things that we've been going through. And that it's, it's created a, a unique time for us with a dialogue to be able to engage people that we haven't been able to because they didn't think it was them or they didn't understand or relate to what mental health issues are. This is an opportunity for us to have a singular you know, event, which you know, the pandemic has definitely been an event. It's still not over yet, but everyone has had a reaction to it. And, and I still to this day have been waiting for people to tell me their positive reactions to it. Maybe that'll come, you know, five years from now and we'll be able to look back and say, we were able to, you know, you know find this out and, and respond positively. We're still kind of in the weeds on that one, but it has uniformly given us an opportunity to have a shared collective that mental health matters, that we have, um, you know, the opportunity to improve it as a community and society through resilience and community building. And so it's exciting. The GRIT team is just one extension of that for a population who definitely needs that kind of inclusion. Well, Eric, it's, it's been a pleasure. Um, I do want to end with, with just three quick questions. Yep. Um, so first, could you um, tell me what you love about Westbrook? Um, you know, there's a lot. 
And there's, um, to just kind of come back to it, it, it's definitely the community of people that I work with. Um, we, we get along, we enjoy each other inside the office and outside the office, but, um, you know, just some things as small as like food truck Friday are, are things that make it exciting and, and, and great to be there. What motivates you? Wow. Um, you know, I have to say my family, um, you know, waking up every day, um, getting a chance to, you know, see the opportunities, you know, to, to be a part of their development, that, that's right there. It motivates me to be a better person, motivates me to help my community. That's awesome. And how do you deal with stress? Probably not as well as I need to. Um, you know, this time of year is tough for me because I'm a big outdoors person. I love taking my dog for a walk, um, being able to sit outside and grill and do all those things. And, you know, right now we're three months into or two and a half months into the winter. So we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But, um, you know, to deal with stress is, you know, you know, I, I try to live this by example is to talk it out. Um, you know, have an opportunity through, you know, close friends, family to be able to have a way to, you know, debrief, discuss, um, talk things through and, and great, gain a greater understanding in the process. Great. Awesome. Well, that wraps up our very first episode of Podcast Studio 2121. I hope you enjoyed listening and I want to remind everybody that mental health matters.